0: Hello, church. My name is Mike Vogel, as Steve Krug mentioned. Uh, my family and I have attended River Hills since about 2006. I used to serve as an elder here. I sincerely appreciate that the current elders have entrusted me with the pulpit today. I'm hopeful that what I preach will be as helpful for you as it has been for me as I prepared this message I was communicating with Mark Milligan this week, uh, and he told me that he always finds significant edification for himself while he's preparing a sermon. And I wholeheartedly agreed with him. It's been a a work of joy to take a deep dive into our sermon text for this morning, which is Luke 10, which is the last text that Nakel read. That text being from the Gospel of St. Luke I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to any of you today uh, or anyone else listening uh, after today. In preparing to preach from a text containing the two greatest commandments, I quickly learned that I was taking on a very significant task. I ended up uh, deleting two pages of my notes in single space to boil this down uh, to what I hope is what God wanted me to preach. Hopefully, I didn't toss out the two pages he really wanted me to preach. <laughs> so each year, as you know, if you've been to River Hills a while, each year, usually in January, we do a one month long uh, church improvement series. And so it's not that we don't want every sermon preached from this pulpit to improve River Hills, right? We do but one month a year we take a concerted effort and we preach uh, four messages, usually based on our core values, but this year we're doing it on our mission. And so our mission is to declare the greatness of God and to serve others for joy and for God's honor. My sermon is the last installment uh, of this one month long uh, series. The title of the sermon today is The Growth We Cultivate. The title of this sermon implies that we're after something. And we are. River Hills exists for a distinct purpose. We wanna declare God's greatness and serve others in in a manner of joy, for joy and for God's honor. To cultivate means to prepare, to devote oneself to, to develop, to promote, to work on. So the text is Luke 10. It's a familiar passage of scripture, probably one of the most familiar, if not the most familiar parable Jesus ever spoke. And we'll see how this passage can help us with our mission. But first, let's pray. Father, Your splendor outshines the sun. Your created sun is nothing compared to the splendor of you, your kingdom. You are the substance, God. Everything else is just the shadow. Yours is the kingdom and the glory. Glory be to you, Father. Glory be to you, Jesus Christ, the Son. Glory be to you, Holy Spirit. You provide the happiness that every heart longs for. To know you and to know your son is to have eternal life. Jesus, you alone are our daily bread. Jesus, you are our bread and wine. Help us to feast on your eternal word. Lord God, we're sinners through and through, but you in your great mercy, you've loved us and you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. You've given us an imperishable seed that will never fade away. Lord, you are love. You loved us first. You love your people continually. And for that, we're most thankful. Help us today to be more like you. Jesus, open the scriptures to us. Today, as you did for the two men on the road to Emmaus. Help us to understand the scriptures. Father, although the world may shout that your son is simply or just an example of faith, we declare today that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. No one is going to get to heaven unless they come through the gate of your son. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us. Please use this sermon to awaken us to a passionate love for you and a passionate love for our neighbors. Amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan is well known, right? I mean, we, we know this. I, I even did a little Google search of Good Samaritan. It's amazing how many hospitals are just called Good Samaritan Hospital or Good Samaritan Clinic just around here, Wisconsin, Illinois, just in the Midwest. It's everywhere. Even though we use this phrase or this term, Good Samaritan, all the time, we hear it all the time oh, he, she was a Good Samaritan or he was a Good Samaritan. To capture the meaning of the parable, we need the context. Jesus' responsive parable was directed and was really was an answer to the, the lawyer's questions. While preparing this sermon, I read through the passage repeatedly and came up with this sort of thesis statement, or my main point, and that's this. The Lord God Almighty commands his disciples to love him with fervent affection, coupled with an outflowing, merciful love for others. And so within this main point, I'll have three sub-points. So my first sub-point is this. That Christians are commanded... To love God in an all consuming manner. So, how do do we love God? How how is love toward God expressed? How does a finite being like any of us love an infinite creator? Is, Is our love noticeable? Is it visible? Do people even know we love God? So, look at verse 25. In Luke 10. The expert in the law asked Jesus a question. And others have also asked Jesus this same question. And Jesus answers similarly every time. So I like Jesus' style here because it reminds me of a teaching method that is so effective. Jesus is asked questions repeatedly by people, over and over. If you read the Gospels, he's asked, What about this? What about this? And he often answers questions with questions. He does that here. He doesn't answer the lawyer's question. He asks him another question, and this is referred to the Socratic method of teaching. And some of you maybe have been in school and have been under this style of teaching. Certainly Jesus does not need to emulate a philosopher like Socrates. He's the ultimate shepherd, right? He's the ultimate teacher. But he's still using a very effective method of teaching. Jesus knows all things. He certainly knows how to teach. And so Jesus is asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer. He questions him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? This, This takes me back because when I was in law school, Professors used this same method constantly. Students in class would ask questions of the professors, and the professors never gave an answer. They would always respond with questions, over and over and over, question after question. And they wanted to test the students' knowledge. They wanted to make the students think. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's causing this lawyer to think, what is it? What's the answer? You, you ask the question, now you tell me the answer to your own question. So it is likely that the lawyer is not asking Jesus a question because he wants to learn from Jesus. He's more likely asking Jesus a question because he wants to back him into a corner. And he wants to, him to give an answer that perhaps is not biblically accurate. So he, you know, the lawyer wants Jesus to say something that's sacrilegious, that's just outrageous and you know, coming out of left field. So as, as Matthew Henry pointed out in his commentary about this this little dialogue here, the lawyer's trying to catechize Jesus. Right? That's what he's doing. And Jesus turns the table around and catechizes the lawyer. And here the lawyer answers wisely, and Jesus tells the lawyer that he answered correctly, right? He says, Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. Which is interesting because we know from the New Testament canon that we don't inherit. Eternal life by keeping the commandments, the Old Testament commands don't don't produce eternal life. What strikes me about Jesus' response is that there's an implication that keeping the laws is, is sufficient, that that's enough. But as the dialogue continues, we realize and we learn that it's obvious the lawyer has not kept the commands perfectly, otherwise he would not try to justify himself by asking for clarification about the identity of the neighbor. You know at first glance it kind of seems amazing that this lawyer would be able to pick out of 600 some old testament commands the two most important ones. You know what you think could you do that could you take the 600 You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked you, well, what do you think? You know, how does somebody inherit eternal life? And you go, got it, I know the two, got it. (laughs) But when we think about boiling down 600 some commands to two, it's actually likely that it wasn't very difficult for the lawyer to come up with the first one. See, the lawyer answers by telling Jesus that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I twisted that a little. The command comes from Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord commands the Israelites to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. For Jews, the passage from Deuteronomy 6 is likely the most memorized text in the Old Testament. And the lawyer recites the command for Jesus. In Orthodox Judaism, the passage beginning at Deuteronomy 6:4 is part of what's called the Shema Israel. It's hear, O Israel, and Shema Israel is in, in Hebrew. It's part of a prayer that's routinely cited in the morning and the evening by Orthodox Jews. And it's quite likely the lawyer recited it that morning And he was going to recite it again that evening. So the expert in the law knew it. The greatest commandment is a command to love. Love is the quintessence of Christianity. It's not doctrine. It's not anything else. Love is the quintessence. It's the essential. That's what Christ came for. He gave his disciples a new command to love. When we're born again, God does not give us a spirit of timidity and fear. He gives us a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. As Jonathan Edwards wrote years ago in his religious affections, God gives a spirit of powerful, holy affection to his people. Edwards is further instructive on the point. He writes, the religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in his word greatly insists upon it that we be good in earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. End quote. God regenerates the sinner, adopts the sinner in love, circumcises the sinner's heart, exposes his profound love to the sinner, and then calls and empowers the sinner to love him in return with the same vigor that God the Father loved the sinner. This is precisely what Nicael read from us at the end of John 17 in that high priestly prayer when Jesus prayed that the love which the Father loves Jesus, would be in Christians, would be in his people. Every Communion Sunday here, we have read to us these commands prior to taking communion. You know, we're, we're read, the, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's the standard of righteousness that applies to a believer. And we continually fall, we continually fail to meet that standard of righteousness. But that does not mean that we should not strive with everything that's within us and with the Holy Spirit's help to live out these two commands. God gives Christians new changed hearts. He has done surgery on us when we are saved. Our prior hearts of stone are exchanged for hearts of flesh. As all of you know, likely, the New Testament was written in Greek. Historical Greek has various words for love. The word in verse 27 in our text today is agape. And if you've been in Christianity for a while, you've been a believer, you've, you've probably heard the word agape for love. Agape incorporates and expands on a Hebrew word for love, ahav, which is the word from Deuteronomy 6. And in historical Greek, what's interesting is, is that the word agape was not used very much. You don't see it many places in historical Greek. It kind of came about and started to be used more when the Septuagint was created, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so all of a sudden, this agape word appears. And so Christianity brought a new type of love into focus and practice. We miss the depth of the command here if we don't know the meaning of agape. When Paul writes of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the first fruit is love, and that word is also agape. There are other words used for love, other Greek words used for love in the New Testament. But here and in many other places, it's agape. Agape is a passionately committed love of choice. It is not love out of attraction or love out of feelings. It's a love that is persistent and concerned with the greatest good of another with no expectation of return. Lots of times we love and we're after something. We want a return on our investment of love. But not, that's not agape love. Agape love is a decisive love. It means an ardent and vehement inclination of the mind and a tender affection simultaneously wrapped together, aggressive love and tenderness, meshed. Our thoughts are to be focused, words are to be spoken, and deeds are to be done. God the Father poured out agape love through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into his chosen people. And then he commands us to reciprocate that love back to him and to others. In 1 John 4, 8, we're told that God is love. Again, God is agape. His love is gracious and it's kind. And he loves for the sake of others. He doesn't need to love us because he doesn't need anything from us. And that's how he wants us to love him back. And he wants us to love others in that manner. Jesus faced the cross for the sake of others. he Didn't do it for himself. When God commands us to love, he is commanding our wills, not our feelings. He's after volition. When agape is exercised, it is not a love to obtain what we want. That's not Holy Spirit empowered love. That's selfish love, when we're loving to obtain what we want. Every love we exercise is not genuine love in accordance with Romans 12. The postmodern slogan that's heard on college campuses around America right now, that love is love, is a lie. Love is not love. There are many kinds of love that are not love at all that we classify in this world as love. Most worldly loves are wrought in selfishness and an inward desire for something. Christians are commanded to love without seeking return from the object of the affection. Pastor John MacArthur from California refers to agape love as the greatest virtue of the Christian life. As I considered how to expose this text even further for us, I thought about the four ways we're commanded to love. God has commanded his disciples to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength or might, and with all their mind. First, we're commanded to love with all of our heart. This word heart is used countless times in scripture. In the Greek, it's the word kardia. And it refers to our most inner thoughts, our designs of thoughts, our deepest feelings we have and we create. I like to think of the heart in a biblical sense as our mental and our emotional nucleus. It's the core of thought. And this, out of this nucleus, as we know, can flow the darkest of evils. But also out of this nucleus can flow a rich love that is stirred up and empowered by the Holy Spirit living in us. So we're commanded to love with our heart, with the nucleus of our minds. Next, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our soul. Using our soul to express love to God is a little bit more difficult concept because I think, "How how do I love God with my soul? In the Greek, it's shuka, which if you've had a psychology class before in high school or college, you certainly recall discussing a human being's psyche, and that's from the same root word. So it's the root word of this common word psychology. It refers to the earthly life of a person, a person's essence, the life element of someone. We're commanded to love God with all of our psyche, with all our life, with our very essence. So then it makes me ask, is my very life loving my eternal king? Am I loving God with all of my life, all of my psyche? Thirdly, we're commanded to love God with all of our strength. This is conceptually easier to grasp, I think, for us. In the Greek, it's iskis. And it refers to our physical power, our physical stamina, our physical abilities. It begs us, it begs the question for us to consider is this. What do we use our strength on this earth to love and pursue? What do we use our strength for? Men, as you listen, are you using your strengths on the temporal pursuits of this life, such as money and power and social standing, sexual pleasure, physical fitness, watching and following college and uh, professional sports to the point of alienating your family? And maybe you're following the stock market Maybe you're focused on and spending your strength on planning your next vacation and your next getaway. Maybe you're focusing some of your strength and your energy on pornography, masturbation, other evils that are despicable. Ladies, what do you spend your strength on? I can't speak to the question as much. I'm not one of you. There are differences between the sexes as much as we're told there are not. But when you consider moms and daughters and young ladies how tired you are at the end of the day, can you look back on the day and think, I'm kind of tired because I spent some of my strength today on loving Christ Or was all of of your strength spent on worldly pursuits and worldly desires? Are you spending it wanting your family to appear a certain way to the outside? To look better than those around you? What about the young people who are with us? The teenagers and college students and even younger. You're not married yet. You don't have a family. What are you spending your strength on to pursue, what are you loving with that strength that the Lord has given you? Are you consumed by technology? Video games, entertainment, Netflix, Disney+, Plus, everything else that's streamed into our homes. God has given you young people amazing strength. I'm 52 years old. I used to be 18 years old. I had a lot more strength when I was 18 years old. And granted, I wasn't using it to pursue God's kingdom. And I wasn't using it to love God. But he's given us this strength to love him. And he wants us to love him deeply with it. So there's a story about a famous athlete, I think you all know, who who I'll mention in a minute. And it gives us kind of a, an indication of how even a respected pursuit with our strength can leave us feeling empty. So Michael Phelps is likely, I think still, the most decorated Olympic athlete ever. He's won 23 gold medals in swimming. In 2018, Phelps revealed that he suffered from depression and he was suicidal after competing in his last Olympic Games. Phelps loved and pursued swimming and the prize of Olympic gold with all of his might. But when the temporal pursuit of the Olympic gold and the joy of being on the podium was gone, he was feeling alone with nothing more to pursue. As another Olympic athlete said recently, we age out. And then we're left to redefine ourselves. Anything we pursue with our strength on this earth will cause us to age out. Only using our strength to love the Lord will be something that never ends. He is our present help. And refuge, our salvation, our sanctification. He's the immutable one. He is holy and he's perfect. He's righteous and he extends loving kindness to thousands of those who love him. He's the perpetual novelty. He's new. Every morning we cannot exhaust him. Finally, the command he tells us love the Lord your God with all your mind. The Greek word for mind here is dianoia. It refers to our understanding, our intellect, our thoughts. I think it's easy for us to think about this and and apply it. So the application here is, are our thoughts Godward and vertical? Are we fixing our minds on Things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or are our thoughts fixed on the things of this world? Which really begets us to hate God. Does our mind have time for God? Are my thoughts centered in selfishness and focused on me and what I can obtain from others? Or are my thoughts vertical? Even our thoughts about God can become idols. We can start thinking that we think better about God than others and we start, you know, getting prideful about that. Everything around us and everything our, our, the nucleus of our, of our minds create can become an idol for us mentally. What are our minds inclined to? What do we treasure What do we go to bed thinking about? What do we wake up thinking about? Whatever our minds are inclined to is likely what we love and what we worship and likely what we will become. As Asaph writes in Psalm 72, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Can we say that? Can we really honestly say that? Is it true of us? We're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind. In other words, to boil it down even more than the the lawyer did, we're commanded to love the Lord with every molecule of us. Every bit of us is Commanded to love him. Every bit of our biological makeup. That is the greatest commandment. And a a second is like it. My second point is Christians display the greatness of God to others with the fruit of love, providing evidence that they are disciples of Jesus Christ. Love of God without love of mankind will not get the Christian very far. If we only cultivate a love for God and we don't cultivate any love for people, we will be like an eight-cylinder engine running on four cylinders. Yes, the first commandment the lawyer mentions in the passage is preeminent, right? We need to love God first. That's preeminent. But from that, flow is a love toward others. In the second century, the theologian Tertullian wrote this. What marks us in the eyes of our enemies is our loving kindness. I love that. So I ask, what marks River Hills Community Church? What marks you as a Christian? Is it only creed? Creed is difficult to put on display. Is it only theological distinctives that define us and mark us? Or does a love of action define us and mark us? Do our lives bear fruit? Is our love apparent to the world? Are we truly serving others for joy in his honor? As the dialogue continues between Jesus and the expert in the law, the conversation's getting more interesting because at the end of verse 27, the lawyer responds with the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Agape your neighbor as yourself. It is, again, amazing that the lawyer can can pull an obscure verse out of the middle of the book of Leviticus. It's uh, Leviticus 17, 18, plant it in front of Jesus. There it is. That's tough. It's one thing to pull that command out of Deuteronomy 6 and out of that Shema Israel. It's It's another thing to boil down to this other one. After hearing the lawyer's response, Jesus says to him, Do this and you will live. The expert in the law seems to grasp the greatest commandment pretty well. We don't see anything in the text about wanting to justify himself. He asks another question about the greatest commandment. He accepts Jesus' answer about that commandment without dispute. The lawyer's question concerns the second part, the neighbor. Let me ask you about the neighbor, Jesus of Nazareth, the lawyer's thinking. I don't have a problem accepting that I should love God. But what about this neighbor thing? Who exactly is my neighbor anyway? Because I truly don't like some of the people around me, and I don't think they like me. The second most important command is much harder for us to accept in our human flesh. It's harder for us to understand and it's harder for us to apply. Loving God, got it. I can do that. I can do it. I like God. He likes me. He's told me. (laughs) I have a whole book about it. I'm, I'm in. But agape toward my neighbor... That's harder. In Galatians 5.14, Paul wrote that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer is about to get schooled again. When I read this text, I imagine a slight pause here before the lawyer asks the next question. Imagine the dialogue. There's a little bit of silence, and then the lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? Ah, that's the question of the hour. Jesus, again, doesn't answer him. But like he's done so many times, he gives him a parable. The parable reveals to the lawyer and to Christians through the ages, that disciples of, the, of Jesus are to love others. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ loves us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He sanctifies us. Our redemptive story is the reason for love. The redemption we experience is the reason we return love to Christ. And it's the reason we love others. R.C. Sproul wrote in his book, What is Reformed Theology, quote, God is able to read the heart. God can read our hearts. God can tell whether we love him. And, and Sproul continues, We are not. The only way I can see another person's faith is by observing his works, end quote. And there's no greater work on this earth than loving our neighbors. Genuine faith always produces good fruit. Loving God is often seen as an unseen exercise, but loving a neighbor puts Christianity on display for the world to see. In this bitterly sorrowful world, people should be flocking to Christianity But sadly, many outside the walls of of this church and a thousand other local churches around the world do not find Christians loving. They find us judgmental. They find us hypocritical. They find us unmerciful. And that is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. If people think about me that way, then I need to change. I need to beg God for the dunamis of His Holy Spirit to revive my heart, to love my neighbor, so that I'm correctly displaying the greatness of God for others as our mission declares. Love needs to be our compelling force. Back in 1993, my wife Carmen and I, who was my girlfriend, at the time, actually, we uh, were attending a church in Rockford. It was a vineyard church. Some of you maybe came out of a vineyard background. And I saw a display of, atten- of love that grabbed my attention. An elder in the congregation named Dave gave a single mother in the congregation a car. And when I heard of this happening, I praised God and I immediately thought of Acts 2, where the disciples, you know, where we see in Acts 2, verse 47, that the disciples um, had all things in common. Actually, it's Acts two forty-four. All, and this is a quote, all who believed were together and had all things in common. I love Acts two forty-four. Upon hearing the story, I thought to myself, I'm seeing Acts 2 played out right in front of me. By this elder giving this person a car. Elders, you don't need to give people cars. He just happened to be an elder. (laughs) But I thought, this is still Acts 2. It's still now. It's still the depth of people caring for others. And this display of charity energized me. And it energized my love for Jesus and my love for others. See, as Christians, we're, we're to have an intense love for others. We're supposed to be aware of others' needs. We must remember that generosity speaks volumes to the, to the people outside these walls. Acts 2.47 tells us that the disciples had favor with all the people. Why? Why would they have favor with the people? Could it be that they were heeding the Lord's command to love, as Tertullian pointed out a hundred years later. In Pastor John Piper's book, A Godward Life, Piper wrote this, quote, I do not want my strength in Christ to simply be fruitful for me, but for others. I want to produce good deeds in the works of love for others so that the glory of God will be seen in my life and others will taste and see that the Lord is good. End quote. Piper's pointing out correctly that Christians should have a noticeable and visible status as lovers of God and for people. People will gravitate toward River Hills Community Church and stay here based upon agape being set and lived out here and not based upon a standard we request from others. Doctrine without the fruit of love is a gong. The world has enough gongs. I was reminded of this fact during Paul Martin's sermon last week. He he slapped me, excuse me, slapped me a couple times. And that was helpful. Our church has two core values that are supported. By our passage today, one of our core values reads, we believe that sound biblical teaching creates and sustains love for God and people. Another core value reads, we believe that loving relationships should permeate every aspect of a Christ follower's life. We aim for people to find friends and feel at home in this church. Have you ever thought about why any of our core values exist Our core values exist because they're built on a foundation of love. Almost every single one of them. All of our core values, or nearly all of them, are motivated by a desire to love. We don't want just good teaching from this pulpit to puff us up with knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Our church's core values want to cultivate this reality of loving God and loving others. We want biblically sound teaching to come from this pulpit, to come from our small groups, to come from everywhere to produce love and passionate affection for the Trinity and love and care for others, for our neighbor. We want people to find friends here. River Hills should be a safe house for anyone calling it their church home. We want loving relationships to permeate the atmosphere here. Sadly, churches are torn apart due to lack of love. Churches fall apart due to a lack of love. They fail due to a lack of love. Churches struggle and close their doors due to a lack of love. May that never be the case here. My last point is that Christians are called to love all people in a merciful Outward display of affection. The Samaritan on the road to Jericho deeply loves and cares for the wounded man on the road. We must see this example and do likewise. We need to pay close attention to the parable to see the example Jesus is using. Jesus is expanding and stretching the command to love our neighbor. Jesus reveals to the expert in the law the depth of the command. If we think about who the Samaritan had mercy on, we realize he had mercy on a complete stranger. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know his identity. He's no one to this Samaritan. And We're not told, but he's probably a Jew. And the Jews and the Samaritans we're at odds constantly. If we consider that Jesus is revealing the end or close to the end of the spectrum of this agape, where our mercy should extend all the way to here, to loving even a complete stranger, we can back up on that spectrum and go, okay, where does that spectrum begin? Well, with those we know, Our spouses, our children, those who already love us. That's the easy end of the spectrum. Jesus is pointing out, I'm taking you to this end of the spectrum. Actually, I've taken you farther than that end of the spectrum. I've taken you and said, even I'm commanding you to love your enemies. So mercy from us needs to extend completely to the end of of the spectrum. It's easy to love those who love us. What reward is that, Scripture tells us. Even even the world, even unbelievers love those who love them. That's just the beginning. After completing the parable, Jesus returns to the Socratic method again, and he asks the lawyer, which of the three persons proved to be a neighbor to the wounded man? The lawyer answers, quote, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus responds, you go and do likewise. When Jesus tells the expert in the law to be merciful, how do we apply that to our daily lives? How does that apply to River Hill's mission to serve others for joy and the Lord's honor? Being merciful is a wide concept. And let's face it, I don't know about you, but I haven't been on the road lately and come across a complete stranger who is beat up by somebody and needed my help. Maybe it'll happen. We might not have that opportunity. So how do we apply this in 2023? The reality for us is that loving our neighbors and strangers and those who are not in these walls is risky business for us. Sometimes we get hurt when we love the object of our love bites us back and the object of our love wounds us but that cannot stop us from loving christians are to be passionate lovers of others with a commitment to the well-being of the other this is precisely what the samaritan did for the wounded man he sacrificed he gave him his time He gave him his supplies. He gave him his care. He gave him his money and offered to give him more money because he told the innkeeper that he would pay him back for whatever else was expended. He provided him transportation. About two months ago, if you're following this, in Buffalo, New York, there was a major snowstorm. Dangerously, dangerously terrible about 50 inches of snow fell in the city of Buffalo over a short period of time. Many people were stranded in their vehicles. It was a crisis situation. And afterward, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about a man who was stranded in his vehicle on the road. He was going to try to help someone else. Somebody had called him, wanted help because somebody else was stranded and he was trying to go help this other man. And after doing this, he he got stuck himself. His vehicle gets stranded, and after trying to stay warm in the vehicle for a few hours, uh, he decided to knock on the doors of houses nearby. So he leaves his vehicle and he goes and he walks on. He starts knocking on the doors of houses. He knocks on the doors. He wants to have to go in. It's that bad. I mean, he needs to get inside. He knocks on the doors of 10 houses. Do you know how many let him in? Zero. Zero. Why? Why don't any of those 10 neighbors let them in? Because they're afraid. Because they're afraid to love. As hard as it may be for us, we must assume the best about others. We are so prone to judge others by their actions, what we can see, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, by our thoughts. The man just wanted safety and no one let him in. Fortunately, he survived. He ended up breaking the window on a public uh, building and he and some others crawled into this public building to get inside. We love our neighbor by being merciful. We must love our neighbors purely for their own sake and not for our gain and not for our reward. The good Samaritan received nothing in return for his love. He may, in reality, have never seen the person again. One of the first books I read as a Christian 30 years ago was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I'm sure if I took a A show of hands, many of us have read this book. If you've not read Mere Christianity, I highly recommend it to you. It's very much worth your time. Lewis wrote several pages on Christian charity, which was the word he was using for love. It was more common to think of charity as that word for love. Lewis wrote this, quote, charity means love in the Christian sense. But love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. End quote. Love is a choice. We choose to love, and we can choose not to love. We must choose to love our neighbors. I highly recommend Lewis's chapter on charity. It addresses loving your neighbor as yourself, Some people struggle because they think, I don't love myself, so how am I going to love someone else? I encourage you, if you're thinking that way today, read Lewis's chapter. I don't have time to elaborate on it. I can't improve upon some other uh, further words of Lewis. He writes this, quote, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. End quote. Psychologists have continually pointed out that behavior often precedes belief. Don't wait for your minds. We can't wait for our minds to want to feel like loving somebody. We should love first. Our implementation of of action precedes our buy-in a lot of times. Love and hatred increase exponentially in life. If we begin loving God and, and others, we will continue in earnest. It will increase. But if we hate God and we despise others and we don't love others, the reverse will occur. It's a slippery slope in either direction. One direction, though, contains a beneficial slide down a slope with great reward and an outward display for the world to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Alexander Stroke wrote in his book, Love or Die, quote, Christ followers are to be marked not only by a total devotion to God, but also by sacrificial Service to neighbor. Love's often hard. It is easier for us to build a cocoon, protect our hearts from loving others. But we must strive to love at all times. Loving God, loving people inside, outside this church. May it be so striking that the world cannot deny that we love our King and passionately love others for our joy and the honor of our Savior. May our love put the greatness of God on display. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you are greatly merciful toward us you are the chief of the merciful. There's no one like you. You extend your loving kindness and steadfast love towards sinners. And we I pray that we would do the same, that we would reciprocate that love to you and you would help us dearly, God, to love others, to extend charity all the time toward others. Amen.